everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. And as always, I am happy to be joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Today, we are going to talk about all things Supreme Court. There were oral arguments this week in a big case dealing with nonprofits and disclosure that might have sweeping implications for money and politics. We're going to have oral arguments this week in another big First Amendment case dealing with speech by students that's off campus and whether or not public administrators can punish them for that speech. And the Supreme Court has agreed to take up its first big Second Amendment case in over a decade. With that, Joe, welcome. Let's dive right into that Second Amendment case. Hello, Jessica. Let's do that. It is a Supreme Court trifecta. Let's start with that Second Amendment news. What happened with the Supreme Court and the Second Amendment early this week, Jessica? So a lot and not that much. The court just decided to take this case. It's a case dealing with a New York restriction. And this is the moment that I think advocates on both sides of the Second Amendment debate have been waiting for or dreading for a while now. And look, there is a new Supreme Court in town. There's a solid six to three conservative supermajority. And I think a lot of gun control advocates have gone from worry to outright abject terror. And what you need to decide to hear a case is four votes. There were four votes to say, yes, we want to hear this new big challenge to a New York law. And this is going to be the first big test of the Supreme Court with President Trump's three nominees, Justice Neil Gorsuch, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And I think we know where this case is going, but Joe, I know we're going to unpack it a little bit more. We most certainly are, Jessica. The manner in which the Second Amendment is interpreted leads to a host of hotly contested issues. Where does the law currently stand in terms of the Second Amendment? So the last big Second Amendment case was written in 2008 by the late Justice Antonin Scalia. And this was a pretty groundbreaking decision. It was a five to four majority, a case called District of Columbia versus Heller. And the court, depending on your perspective, either created or reaffirmed an individual right to keep guns in your home for self-defense. Now, a reminder, that was a very different Supreme Court. That was a court that generally leaned conservative by a vote of one, sometimes two. This is a court that tilts decidedly conservative, again, by a supermajority of six to three. And what's really interesting is that since 2008, we haven't heard much from the Supreme Court when it comes to Second Amendment issues. And why is that, Jessica? Why nothing since 2008? That seems like a really long time for a court not to address such an important issue. Well, it is a really long time. And in fact, Justice Clarence Thomas, who's arguably the most conservative justice on the Supreme Court, has written in dissents and concurrences and separate opinions for a while now and said, we're treating the Second Amendment like it's not in the Constitution. We're treating it like a second-class citizen right, and we need to hear a big case. And now, you know, the moment is upon us. So you asked me, though, why nothing since 2008. And I think largely it's because the Supreme Court really wanted to turn down the volume 
on all of the rhetoric around the court because the court is having to be on the defensive with respect to its legitimacy, the legitimacy of its members and how its members are chosen. I mean, let's remember what has happened since 2008. Justice Antonin Scalia, who authored the last big decision, again, that 2008 Heller decision, he passed away in 2016. And then we've talked about on the podcast before, Joe, but it bears repeating, Senate Majority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, held that seat open for more than a year, uh, waiting until President Trump was elected and then waiting until he nominated Justice Neil Gorsuch. A lot of people were very angry about that. Then what happens, Justice Anthony Kennedy retires, President Trump nominates Brett Kavanaugh, and there's a bruising confirmation battle. Psychology professor Christine Blasey Ford accuses Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault when he was a teenager. There were really contentious confirmation hearings where he got anywhere between angry and irate, depending on your perspective. And he said, I didn't do this. And he really railed against Democrats. Um, And then what happens next? September 2020, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who held Justice Scalia's seat open for over a year, says, we're going to fill this. And he filled that seat. And they held confirmation hearings for now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And she was um, seated on the bench while people were voting for president. So it wasn't just before the election, it was during the election, which is all a really long way of saying, because the Supreme Court has been, I think, in a moment of having to prove its legitimacy. And I, and they don't think they wanted to touch this big hot button issue. I mean, what are the things that are the biggest hot button issues when it comes to Supreme Court, abortion and gun control? So I suppose all's fair in love, war, and Supreme Court appointments, Jessica. So what are the specifics of this law? Why is it in front of the court at this time? So the New York law places limits on a person's ability to get a license to carry a gun outside of their home. And the law requires that people have a, quote, proper cause or a, quote, actual and articulable reason to carry the gun outside of the home. More than a dozen states have similar laws, and the court's going to be deciding whether or not this restriction on how you get a license flies in the face of the Second Amendment. Yeah, just a little background here, Jessica. You mentioned the half a dozen states. Gun laws in America are extremely complex, and they vary a lot from state to state with additional specific regulations even beyond that. And so as a primer here, let's start with what's commonly called open carry. Now, this is the ability for citizens to openly carry firearms in public. Currently, three states, as well as the District of Columbia, have prohibitions on open carry. Those states are California, Florida, and Illinois. My home state and where I live now being two of those states. Two states prohibit openly carrying handguns, but allow long guns. Now, long guns are like rifles and shotguns, a gun that has a longer barrel than a handgun that you would carry with one hand. Three additional states, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and New Jersey, prohibit openly carrying long guns, but then they allow the open carry of handguns. So that's the inverse of those other states. Examples of exemptions include prohibitions from openly carrying guns in locations like schools or businesses owned by the state or places where alcohol is served and on public transportation like buses and trains. Now, beyond these restrictions, 
Specific states have other specific laws as for whether openly carried guns can be loaded or not, or whether or not a permit is required for that gun. Now, I did a bunch of research on this, and data that I found today showed that an estimated 9 million adults in the United States carry a loaded handgun on a monthly basis, with about 3 million of those people carrying them every single day. So that's just open carry. Now, let's talk about something called concealed carry, and it's pretty much what it explains. So it's it's having a gun that you can't see. It's not on your hip. You guessed it, Jessica, with concealed carry, laws also vary greatly from state to state, so there are no surprises there. Every state, including Washington, D.C., allows its citizens to carry concealed weapons in some manner. 31 states require a permit for concealed carry, and the balance of those 19 remaining states, for the most part, allow concealed carry with no permit of any kind. There are requirements for things like background checks that vary from state to state. And just like with open carry, like we talked about before, there are restrictions as for where people can bring concealed weapons. Bars, schools, hospitals, and other public sporting events are places where they're prohibited in some places. So after avoiding the issue for 13 years, the Supreme Court is wading back into the Second Amendment morass. And I just wanted to say one thing here. The Supreme Court will make its decision against a backdrop of a country that's grappling with regular mass shootings. I know we've all kept up with the news as we're opening up more and more as this pandemic thankfully winds down. Shootings, unfortunately, are going back up. And people who follow me on social media will notice that every time there's a shooting, I post an article by the satirical news site The Onion And it says, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. I post this because it has such a deep effect upon me whenever these shootings happen. As of April 2021, The Onion has republished this article an additional 17 times. So think on that for a second. All they do is they change the location. They change some minor details to reflect where that shooting took place, the body count, etc. Those other mass shooting events have happened in America. And depending on where you draw the line, I know I think CNN draws the line at five people killed or five people shot. So some of those events are shooting events which just happen to have had fewer than five people shot or killed. So, Jessica, let's get back into the realm now that we know exactly or at least a little bit about what we're talking about. What if those fears of gun control advocates everywhere, what if they come true? What if America becomes some kind of place where everyone's got a Glock on their hip? Well, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I will say that I think fears are absolutely founded, at least with respect to what's going to happen to this New York law. If you're a gun control advocate, if you're looking at the composition of the Supreme Court, Um, I think that if you are worried about what the court is going to say, again, that's entirely rational. Now, if you're a, if you're somebody who thinks that we should be reading the second amendment more broadly, this is a good day for you. But you asked me, you know, what would happen? Well, if the court rules that this New York law, in fact, violates the second amendment, it means that that's a law that cities and counties and states cannot implement. And, I I know that sounds obvious, but it's not something that state lawmakers or lawmakers on the federal level can override because this obviously is a constitutional decision. And I know I sound like a law professor here, but it really is important to look at when the Supreme Court is making decisions based on the Constitution, because they're the last word on what the Constitution means. And when the Supreme Court is making decision like striking down a statute, for instance, where the lawmakers can come back and say, okay, well, let's try this one. So 
It depends on what the Supreme Court says, how broadly or narrowly they write the decision, but um, it could mean that there are just fewer tools left in the tool shed for people who want to implement gun control measures and that they'll have to increasingly focus on, you know, very carefully and narrowly crafting future laws or at least avoiding laws that look like these particular laws. Okay, Jessica, so is that just a throwing up of the hands moment for those who want stricter gun control legislation? Should they merely resign themselves to investing in body armor and sandbags? I mean, are there any other legislative options left? So there are a lot of legislative options left. They just don't include or they won't be able to potentially include these particular restrictions. So I certainly don't want anybody to take away, you know, just throw up your hands, it's over. And you know, it's a couple of avenues. Again, it's legislation that doesn't bear on this particular issue. And we have seen, and it takes too long, but we have seen that at times the Supreme Court reverses course. And, um, you know, there, I don't think this is going to happen, but there are pushes to, in fact, amend the Constitution and change the Second Amendment, or at least push a very, a different and radical reading of the Second Amendment. And, I think with that, it's time to turn to from the Second Amendment to the First Amendment and maybe talk about the big case that was already argued this week dealing with the First Amendment and disclosure. Yes, Jessica, let's move on to other SCOTUS news. I know that the court argued a case about California and nonprofits early this week. Can you please fill us in on the details about that particular case? I will. And actually, my dentist asked me about this this morning, and I'm going to try and say it in a way that um, I think is much more straightforward because he looked more pained than I did after the dental work. So here we go. There is a California law that says to nonprofits that operate in California, you have to tell the attorney general, not the public, but the attorney general, the names of the major donors to your nonprofit. Now, there have been some leaks in California. There have been moments where, in fact, this information is potentially susceptible to public view, but it's not supposed to be made public. And the argument here by two conservative entities, two conservative nonprofits, is, look, this infringes on our First Amendment rights because it chills speech. People aren't going to want to give to our nonprofits if they know that The California attorney general gets this information and is potentially susceptible to being made public. Now, it sounds like this is a fairly narrow issue, but actually it's potentially much broader. And stay with me for a moment, everybody, because of something called the standard of review. So we know in cases, in cases like this, the court has to determine basically how suspicious are we of this particular law or regulation? And if they're really suspicious of the law or regulation, maybe they don't trust the government or the law or regulation infringes on a fundamental right, like the right to freedom of speech, freedom of association, then the court's going to use something called strict scrutiny, which is really, really hard to satisfy. And typically, if the court truly applies strict scrutiny, it means the law regulation will be invalidated. It'll be found unconstitutional. But what the court has said when it comes to campaign disclosure cases is that they should use something more like a medium type of scrutiny, something called exacting scrutiny, which actually the court 
in the citizen, the 2010 Citizens United case espoused. And because the court uses that mid-level of review, Joe, then it means that a lot more campaign disclosure laws and regulations are upheld. Now, the worry here is that the court is going to apply strict scrutiny to this nonprofit disclosure law, and that it will then kind of shimmy that strict scrutiny onto campaign disclosure, and that this would then lead to an explosion of so-called dark money, which is money that's spent and not really disclosed to the public. Now, there's been about a billion dollars, I've read, of dark money that has been spent since the Citizens United decision. So this isn't just a theoretical question, but Joe, that's really what this case is about. It's about more than this case. It's about the standard that the court is going to use, and it's about what could happen in campaign disclosure cases, which provide the public with really important information about who's trying to influence their votes. And I think this almost wraps up our tour of the First Amendment, but there's one more case that's going to be argued this week dealing with a cheerleader. I know not your area of expertise, but do you want to set us up for this one? I do indeed. Cheerleaders. <laughs> Why wouldn't I want to set that up, Jessica? This particular case involves a Pennsylvania cheerleader who vented her displeasure about not being picked for the varsity cheerleading team on social media in a vulgar fashion, I might add. How did something like this find its way all the way to the Supreme Court? This sounds like a Brady Bunch episode plot point, Jessica. So I know it might sound trivial, but it actually brings up really deep and fundamental questions about how broadly the First Amendment protection really is, particularly when it comes to public school students and whether or not they can be punished for their speech. So this particular student tried out for the varsity cheerleading team. Uh, She didn't make the varsity team. She made the junior varsity team. She apparently went home, posted on Snapchat, as one does, and she posted a picture of her middle finger, and then she used the F word as applied to, I think, cheerleading, sports, school, and I think, I believe also just everything. And she was, her coaches saw the post. Uh, She was suspended, and her father connected with the ACLU, and they brought a case saying you can't punish her for the speech. Public school administrators, you can't you can't take any action against her as a result of this. And so that's why the case is before the Supreme Court. And we know the answer to the question of what can public school administrators do with respect to students who engage in certain types of speech on campus? And the answer is they can punish students for certain types of speech, but we don't know about off-campus speech. So this is the distinction that's left open. What can happen on campus versus off campus? And again, it's an example of it's a brave new social media world. I know it ages me to even say new and social media, but there are just contours of the First Amendment that we don't know about because technology has changed and it's changed behavior. So that is the case that will be argued on Wednesday of this week. And maybe we'll talk about it again. We expect a decision by the end of June or at least before July 4th. And I think that's our tour of Supreme Court cases. Some other news just this week, 
One is there's some big news regarding the census, some states gaining seats, some states losing seats. We'll talk about that in a separate episode because how many representatives you have really can determine how much power your state has in the nation's capital. And news out of California, Joe, where you and I are speaking to each other from, which is that the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom has, in fact, qualified for the ballot. So Governor Newsom will be, I believe, the second governor in California's history to stand for a recall election. What voters in California are going to see is that there will be first a question, do you want to recall Governor Newsom? I expect that the answer to that will be no. And then the second question will be, do you want to vote for one of these 50,000 people who has paid $4,000 to get their name on a ballot? And I expect that the answer to that will be moot because we won't recall the governor. But Joe, is there anything you are looking forward to or particularly trying to avoid when it comes to this recall? Oh, boy, oh, boy. I remember, I, Jessica, the last recall happened before I lived in California, but I was traveling in California around that time in that fall of whatever year that was in the early aughts. And I remember talking to a lot of Californians as kind of an ad hoc journalist, because as I traveled around the state, I was everywhere from San Diego all the way to the Oregon coast, a lot of places in between. And a lot of people felt kind of the way that I'm hearing people in California talk about this recall election now, as in this is a waste of time and this is a waste of money. But it seems like it's going to be something we have to endure and move on to the next thing. So (laughs) I don't know, Jessica, maybe I should take a little trip and start asking folks and see what they think of this one as well. So that was back in 2003. And I think things are different for a couple of reasons. And I think we'll devote more time to this. But one, California is a lot bluer than it was in 2003. There are a lot more Democrats and or no party preference voters who lean Democratic. The other thing is that We just don't have, at this point, a challenger like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was not only a celebrity, but let's remember, was involved in civic life, had already pushed for ballot measures. And while he was and is a Republican, or he had this stamp of approval of Democrats because he was married to Maria Shriver at the time. He had kind of the stamp of approval from the Kennedy dynasty. And I think for a whole host of reasons, that was a very different recall. In terms of what we should be looking for for Governor Gavin Newsom, response to the pandemic, if things continue to look good in California, that's his political fortunes will continue to look good, whether or not kids can stay in school, and the economy. Now, assuming he doesn't go to French Laundry five nights in a row right before the recall, I suspect that he will survive this. But it'll be a really interesting time to watch in California. And I think the nation, of course, will be looking at our state of almost 40 million people to figure out what happens. So I think that will do it for us for today. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for everybody who is listening. We really do absolutely love having these conversations with you. You can find Joe across the socials at In Depth Day. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And we have joined TikTok where we have a few videos. We're still learning. Be patient, everybody. More information coming. 
Thank you again to our listeners for your support, Jessica. Thank you, because I do love sharing these conversations with you, and I know the listeners get a lot out of this. And both of us, I know, look forward to having many more conversations here on Passing Judgment. I'd be mighty appreciative if you liked, followed, subscribed, and commented on our social media pages. So have a great day, everyone. We'll talk to you later in the week. Thank you.